Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Cast. My name is Sam and I'll be joined shortly by Allie and Pastor Mike. Thanks to everyone who has taken the time to send in questions. We look forward to answering those on next week's episode of The Cast, which we'll be recording this coming Wednesday. As always, I just want to remind everyone that the views expressed on the cast are those of the people expressing them and may not necessarily reflect the views of our church. With that said, please enjoy. So I know us Protestants have a funny time around uh, confessing sins. We don't really like to go to confession to to the priest to, you know, explain what we did wrong. Because obviously priests can't forgive us our sins. Only God can forgive us our sins. We'd all agree Agreed. on that point. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Some good theology there. Um, but it does say in James to confess your sins to one another um, that you you may be prayed for and, and healed. And um, I just, uh, this sermon this week was really convicting to me. Um, it was about coveting. And um, yeah, I was really convicted of that. I think probably most people in the room were convicted of that one. It's one of the ones that is very easy to hide inwardly um, out of all the, the Ten Commandments. And specifically, I think the thing that I know I covet is uh, clothing, fashion. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do like dressing well. I do like expressing myself with how I dress. And uh, I think I'm not alone in that. And the reason I know I'm not alone in that is because just about every conference speaker or uh, famous worship leader or celebrity pastor owns a leather jacket. And I think... And skinny jeans. And skinny jeans. And to be honest... I'm not hating. I'm just saying the only other subculture in the world that has that combination of skinny jeans and leather jackets more than Christians would be like aging punk rockers. Yes. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, it's like everyone saw, you know, how good Carl Lentz looks in his skinny jeans oh, and leather word. jacket and just wanted to be him. They were coveting what he had, that image, that uh, popularity. That's just the guy hits the style on all accounts, man. He does. Yeah. And, and the, you got to remember the tattoos hit it off too. Yeah, but I could, I could Carl Lentz is old. And he still manages. But, like he looks old. But he's like he's like a dad. So it, like th- that's cool right now. People people are into the dad I can't tell. vibe. Are you on his team or not on his team right now? I, you know, I I'm not gonna say he doesn't dress well. He dresses he well. He does. I'm just well, saying I think the the church has a coveting problem. And like of course we have a coveting problem because we're all humans. But I think that uh, there's some forms of coveting that we kind of forgive ourselves for maybe a little bit too easily. And I include myself in that because mm-hmm. I think uh, I think we like fashion's one that we can kind of tiptoe around and justify and be like, it's just how I'm expressing myself, which I just did. I just did that. But I think like that is <laughs> that is literally like I just think that's a cover up for some sort of insecurity that I'm hiding. I, I got to be real with you guys. What insecurity is that? I don't know. Just like that people maybe don't understand me the way I want to be understood. So I have to like wear clothes that somehow express some form of my identity. But can clothes fully encapsulate who Sam is? No, but I mean, they definitely 
send some kind of message about yeah. me, I think. I don't know. Yeah, what kind of message are you sending right now? I was just at work today. To, to be honest, I didn't put a lot of thought into what you guys, how you guys are perceiving me. So that's cool. this is pretty... Yeah. Mike and I both didn't put any effort in. So <laughs> I'm speaking on both of our behalves right now. <laughs> hey, man, track pants and a sweater. Okay, work. but you yeah, guys work. usually look like pretty good at church. Like, well, well, I think, yeah, because I don't know if it's from coveting for me. It's more just like the perception of me thinking I look good in an outfit. But even at that, like my wife picks out all my clothes. Not like yeah. every morning. I mean, like that sounded bad. She doesn't pick out my clothes. <laughs> it's okay. Go, you can be honest here. <laughs> when we go to the store, I say, babe, do you like this or not? If she gives the approval, then we buy it. That's, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. And so... So are you a trophy husband? <laughs> she wants to show you off? I like to think so. I like to think so. <laughs> yeah. uh, but probably it's just because like she's more in tune with the aesthetic side of life. And so it's like, if she thinks it looks good, I'll look good. But then it's true. I'll look at those guys um, and think like, well, they're the cool pastors or whatever. So then why not dress like them? Um, but then, like, to be honest, if I had my way, I'd be like, in, what, what, what would I wear if I didn't care at all? Um, you would probably look like me right now. No, I think I'd be a little more like Jordans and I don't know. Like you're about to play basketball? Probably a little more in, in that in that range, but Or those shoes? Jordans, yes. They're they're their okay. shoes. They are. Yeah. But I don't know, I think there's a yeah, def, there's definitely this culture, right, of certain churches have to certain young, relevant, mm-hmm. whatever word churches look a certain way, dress or have a culture of fashion in them. Actually, mm-hmm. one of those pastors, I won't say which one, uh, say that fashion is a, is, by, is, is a way of evangelism because you're trying to relate to your culture but and you be missional what? and all that stuff, which I think... I is, disagree with that. It, I, like, I understand it. Like, you know, you want to... I do too because you don't like want, the culture, but... Yeah, you don't want to be like the stereotypical, like, I don't know, Christian kid whose mom dresses him. Like, you don't want to be that. Overalls are unnecessary for the gospel. Let's just be real. Yeah. yeah. But I think there is a level of, like, relatability 100% that we can have. And I'm, obviously, you guys know, not one for the suits and ties kind of model of church. But I think we have to be really checking our heart in why we do it. Like, I understand, to be honest, why someone in New York like Harlan's would, you know, be in more in tune with that just because of his crowd, because of, you know, the people in his church who are fashion designers and creators in that way. And um, there would be a kind of reflection of culture, which I do appreciate. Um, but it's when you get a guy, you know, in the middle of, I don't know, Wyoming in a farm town with skinny jeans on. It's like, why? Right. Or we're just recognizing where, where you are and, and really why you're doing what you're doing. Like, I think anything can become an idol, obviously. But in this case, I think fashion is is tied so close to who we are, how we express ourselves. That mm-hmm. I think Sam's right. The the leeway that we give in that particular idol, outside of buying stuff, obviously shopping mm-hmm. and self, we could get there. But the, our, our our relationship to our clothes, why we dress, why we don't dress, who we look to, who do we want to imitate, um, is a deeper conversation of where we're really at. Uh, not that clothes are that powerful, but it's part of our expression right it, it, i mean clothes can dramatically change how you're perceived like they're like we have to be cognizant of that i think you can if you look really good one day like people actually are going to whether they mean to or not treat you differently to be honest this um, is very true yeah especially as a woman yeah like i can go out looking like i do right now and get absolutely no attention 
the moment I put on skinny jeans and a shirt that is remotely tighter than like a loose fitted t-shirt or anything it's like a lick of mascara and a little bit of lipstick and it's like the world of a difference Mm-hmm. Same. Just kidding. Okay. No, no, I don't. I don't do that. You if you put on, on mascara, it'd be a difference. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. But for real, I can. Yeah. Which is sad. It. It is. It is. Right. But I think we are biology. Somewhat. Well, I just think we, yeah. we are like. How do I say this well? I think like we are surface people at the, at the most mm-hmm. basic level that we see things that we either like or don't like, and then we respond certain ways. And obviously, how we present ourselves is is that way. And I know people will say, you know, like your fashion is, you know, for you and it's expression, but I don't know. I've always been skeptical of that. Like it's for other people. It is. It's for other people to perceive you in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And and maybe there are those who are like, you know, self inflated warriors of their own identity. And they can, that was more mean than I meant it to be, but just who just don't care. And maybe that's true. But then I find that the people who say that they don't care, get identity out of not caring which is still a relationship to the other person's not caring of me. So it still is dependent on the other person and my perception of them. So I think there is that now, you know, connected to coveting, right? Like Sam was talking about how we desire to have what someone else has through the, through, I think fashion through our, because what is fashion really? If it's not in a, in that case to me, and this is where maybe I go, it's more of an expression of um, almost status, or, or coolness, yeah. right? Like, I know these brands, I wear these things, I can afford these things, um, or like, I'm up with trend, I'm, you know, relevant in the church world, that's such a big, you know, um, buzzword, but, and then you think, well, if I can be like them, or I can have what they have, then maybe I can experience what they're experiencing, which is just mm-hmm. stupid, but we buy into it so easily. I think that whole thing that you just touched on with class, and, and even maybe social status and social group, and possibly like the clique that you identify with, just fashion being an identifier of you with a certain group of people is dangerous in a church setting. I don't ever want people in our church to feel like they can't hang out with someone because they can't afford as nice a clothes as them or they don't maybe aren't just as fashion forward in their thinking or um, yeah, just like I don't want division to be created over clothes. And I feel like that can happen a lot. Like, I feel like if yes. you build a church culture where it's expected that everyone is fashionable there, like that's dangerous too. I think as individuals, that's okay. But there is weird uh, tribalism, I think, that can yeah. actually come out of how you dress. And yeah, I can say that I've been to a church like that in the past, not our current church. But, um, and it was, that was also at a point in my life where I was, worried about what other people thought of me and like very concerned Hmm. and so when I was at this other church that I used to frequent it was like a ritual of mine to I spent at least an hour every day before I went there to get ready and I felt like there was a pressure there um, to look good, to put on a mask not that they ever projected that from stage like definitely they did not do that but it was like a very uncomfortable, um, looking back with perspective, I can say that I was uncomfortable as a human going into that environment and feeling that pressure that maybe I didn't recognize at the time. 
but what you look like, it, it did matter. Hmm. Because if you didn't look like them, you stuck out. And nobody wants to stick out, especially in a church setting, um, if if you're new, if you've never been to a church before, right? Like you want to blend in. You don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. And yeah, you so, want to be welcome. Yeah, you want to feel like you're a part of something. Mm. Like that tribal mentality that you were talking about, but in a healthy way. Yeah. And I felt like this was like a very not great, um, not a great way to go about things. Yeah, I think... I would never want to be a part of a church where everyone looked the same. Like, I think it's a sign that there's something else that's holding us all together, something deeper, I think, if if it's not just like, this is the cool kids club. Yeah. No, I think that, I agree, that I think that a church that is too homogenous culturally in that sense. Obviously, there's cultural values and things, but everyone looks the same and and dresses the same. could be a reflection of culture, but I think it also could be a reflection of a culture I mean outside the church. Like this is our, mm-hmm. our space, right? Because again, I like using country churches because it's kind of low hanging fruit in this way. Like if you go there and they're all in overalls and farm gear, like, yeah, we're in farm country. That's what we should be, mm-hmm. right? But in a place that is a city, where there's many different cultures and many different subcultures and all those things that are expressed. Mm. Um, I do think there is a, a level of responsibility on a church to not curate a standard Mm-hmm. within the community right because you're hoping that this is a place where like talk, you, you quoted james before where james talks about how you know one, one of the one of the sins that churches can get into is partiality to the rich right that they get the best seat at the house they could have communion first they could do all this stuff and he's like no like that's not how we act in the church mm-hmm. that if you are homeless and and um you'll come off the street and you haven't had a shower in a couple of days you should feel as at home here yes right as the the richest guy in the room um and that we as a church should never want to show deference to simply those who are more similar to us in different ways. And so really, really the question becomes in that sense, it's really kind of, I think, more of the conversation, less about fashion really at that point, and more about how do you cultivate a certain perception in, in, in a community, right? Because mm-hmm. like like Ali, you said that, there was, that in your experience, it was never, you know, propagated or, or pushed up by, you know, the leaders necessarily. Yeah. But obviously within that culture, there's something going on that made this implicit pressure happen, mm-hmm. which is also an interesting, you know, case study for cultural development in communities that we probably could get into for our church. But mm-hmm. in the sense of like the role of how a community kind of indoctrinates its own people in good and bad ways. And mm-hmm. so a really question could be, you know, um, what what were the factors in your heart that that made you believe I have to be this way, yeah. like like in that community, or even things that people said. Like, were there things that you encountered that you're like, well, because of these things, I felt like I had to do the had to yeah. measure up in that sense. Yeah, I think that I think that it's hard for both men and women, but I'll speak to obviously to the women on this one. Um, it was at a point in my life where I just felt a lot of pressure and it was probably just pressure that I put on myself. Um, but from what I was seeing and what I was, everything that I was visually digesting was telling me you have to look a certain way. And that's kind of the cry of our culture at this point with everything. (laughs) But it was, um, it was an unhealthy kind of heart mindset that I was in definitely because um I just I I wanted to be like everybody else and I felt like that pressure was probably again like internally 
I pushed it upon myself. Um, but it was, again, like to speak to the fashion aspect, it was like I had to, I had to have my makeup perfect. I had to do my hair. Mm-hmm. I had to dress in my literally the best clothes that I had. And I felt like I had to do that. It I was going to say that. You keep saying you had to. Yeah. Um, because if the, I yeah. didn't, I wouldn't feel? get any attention. And from, so, like, from boys? The boys? From boys. From girls that you look at and you're like, well, they look, they look good. I want them to be my friends. I want to, at a very, very basic human level, like, I want to improve my status. Yeah, the um, belonging. The sense of belonging. The barrier then was kind of in how you appropriated yourself to be similar. Yeah. Right? And that's why I do think there is a lot of power in, in sort of the, the silent leadership moments, right, of who do we put on stage? Who do mm-hmm. we show as prominent? Who do we lift up? Who do we articulate as a good representation of our church? Who, yes. who do we encourage, right? Because, like, I was at a church before, and there's a guy who played on our band, and um, he always had not like fashionable ripped jeans. Like, yeah, he just had ripped jeans, not intentionally. They just sort of accidentally ripped jeans. He had this like long belts that were way oversized, and um, sometimes wore these weird hats. Um, and people would actually complain to me about it. Um, at the time, I had some authority in that area of the church and um i actually said and this is against a lot of advice that i was given um because a lot of times churches have dress codes and i understand it for especially for worship and on platform and things because you do want people to not be distracting and you Mm -hmm. want people to be you know best foot forward kind of thing but i recognize and this is why i did it and for good or for bad i knew that the place that we were as a church literally the, the the community was lower income community and that he did kind of represent um, the average guy in that space, maybe not fully ripped jeans like he had, but not coming to church, put together, not wearing leather jackets, not wearing those things. And so I actually never told him to change, uh, so that people could visibly see, Hey, I look like that. And he's up there. So it's okay for me to be here. Kind of. And there's yeah. one, it's one of those sort of implicit lessons I was trying to teach with just like, you know, you, you can belong here even if you don't feel like you can afford a new shirt or mm-hmm. something. Like, I know it seems idealistic, and the more I say it out loud, the more I realized as I was younger and probably was a little bit, but I do believe in the principle that, you know, people do, people will recognize lessons that maybe you don't intend to teach um, in so many different ways, yeah. right? And so I think it's just being aware. That's why, like, you know, for us at our church, we do talk a lot about um who's on stage you know um how what's the balance of of people's voices that are being heard you know and we'll joke sometimes about you know how like we've had too much guys up there get some ladies up there you have too many ladies this week and it's not because we're just trying to be hypersensitive to gender issues but because i actually want there to be a diversity of people that people can recognize and say hey like i can fit in i i, I relate to that person i see them up there and like I do think that's actually a powerful cultural community marker of what is our common understanding of, of belonging in an expression sense. Now, you guys know I try to dress 
nicely, I think. But as I, as I said, it's sort of from Emily, like what she sees and what she curates. And I just say, hey, if you think, like legitimately, I only, I think I wear things that I like mm-hmm. in quotations because Emily has told me that I like them. Therefore, you like them. Right? Like you know what? I'm actually trying to work on that with my boyfriend right now. <laughs> okay. I mean, if you're listening, I'm not going to say any names, but uh, man up. Anyways. <laughs> um, no, the thing is because before, like legit, when I was younger, I, I wore basketball shoes, windbreakers, sweaters. That was goat or tearaways. Classic, oh my right? word. That, that was it. And then. I, you know, then I got to like grade nine and had the opportunity to reinvent myself. We moved back from BC mm. to Ontario. So I decided to wear jeans. Rebrand. I rebranded <laughs> with sweaters and jeans because I was like, I'm going to be cool, man. Right? And then, I've told you guys about this. I went through a phase where I wanted to be like Shia LaBeouf on uh, Even no? Stevens. I've preached on that. How like I, at one point I wanted to like wear Hawaiian shirts oh, and like yes, cargo yes, shorts and everything. I remember this. I That's legit amazing. had a few Hawaiian shirts. I never wore them. Never had the confidence. Right? Yeah, so then yeah. when I met Emily... She actually makes fun of the outfits I wore when she like I was like legit like white, <laughs> white jackets with like teal and green, like floral decor on them with like a red shirt underneath. It was like bad. I look back now I'm like how did, or or there was a polo face pop collar. Ew. That was, oh, pop collar is not good. That, Polo's that fine. Nice. Polos right. are okay. But on then I met my girl and she started you know influencing me in certain ways mm-hmm. and then um, I assumed that. She knew better what she did, right? And so I dress now mainly because, like, she, I know she likes it, right? Like, and that's, I know that seems kind of like, um, like, like I don't care what people think. I do, but I care more about Emily liking it. So even for me, as when I think about church and dressing, like, I want to dress nice and yeah. not wear the same things, but like, my standard has been set based on what my wife likes, and then I just, I just wear as those things. As it should be. Right? <laughs> but, okay, you I, go ahead. I was going to say, this is an interesting point because, Ali, you kind of touched on it earlier, though, is like the idea of dressing to attract the opposite sex. And um, I mean, is it because in our church culture, we just force marriage on people so young and so oh, all, the, all the young teens are... You just opened a can of worms. I did, yes. But like, is it because there's cute boys at church and yes. you want them to... Okay, I don't even have to finish the question. That is why. Uh, yes, yes, and yes, because where else are you going to find someone? That's true. I mean... That's, that's no, all. No further questions. That's right. <laughs> well, okay. again, like, we are visual people. Yeah. And so, like, there is a level of, like, we talked about it when they're in yeah. our pocket. Like, there is a level of attraction that has to be there. And so Absolutely. you're going to try to present yourself. Like, if anyone thinks legitimately the done up version of you is who you're going to get when you get married, then you're just foolish, right? Like if luckily you get a girl who looks just as good, like my wife, love you, babe, uh, then you're great. But you know, but you know what I'm wondering is where do you draw the line between I care about what I look like and I don't care at all about what I look like? Because for me, I can say that I've probably gone from one extreme to the other. And I think that both can be, ungodly i think that both can be i care way too much and far too prideful Mm. and then there's the very opposite end of the spectrum where you're like i don't care at all about my body but my body is a temple of the holy spirit and i need to put care and effort into it um and i think that for me like that was a journey i had to go through um like i said earlier i started out obviously as a teenager you're you have to learn how to how to be how to be an adult and how do you how do you interact with other people? And, and what does that look like? Um, what does that look like in what you're wearing as well? And, and how you present yourself? Um, 
And so I went through a phase of like, I cared so much about what other people thought that every time anybody saw me, like to even to, to go out outside of my house, I had to wear makeup. And that was an unhealthy state for sure. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are times where I'm just like, I literally don't care about my body. So I'm going to eat whatever I want. I mean, it doesn't necessarily apply to clothing. Well, I can. I can. If you've ever watched What Not to Wear, it does apply to clothing. (laughs) Um, And sometimes I feel like I should be on that show because I still today go through periods where I'm like, I literally don't care what I look like or how I present myself. But if I were to walk into my workplace like that, that has a drastic impact on my team because I'm leading a team and I have to be the example and set the professional standard that way. Yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. I mean, when I go into work every day and I like, to be honest, I feel like it brings the workplace down when there's people in cargo shorts and flip flops in my office. (laughs) Like, I, I don't know. It just feels like they're not taking their work as seriously as they should be and it's like i know they're probably doing a great job to be honest it's just there is a certain level of i think professionalism and seriousness that i want to sort of work under i think i don't know it's interesting that you say that Mm -hmm. to me because speaking of a guy that tends to try to go against cultural norms right you buying into the idea that cargo shorts and sandals means they don't take it seriously is basically a cultural story that we've been told that's true wow i need to go home and deconstruct that a bit i just okay so my dad was a teacher um and this is his sort of philosophy on even his own interaction with clothing is when he goes into work he dresses pretty professionally like he'll wear a suit not a suit he used to wear a suit when he was younger now he just wears like a nice shirt tucked into his pants uh khakis and you know dress shoes And when he comes home, he takes that off because that's his uniform for working. And then he puts on like just comfortable casual clothes. And that's his way of kind of mentally separating the two worlds. So I think, I guess I've taken that seriously somewhat. And I, I, because for me, that does actually work. Well, I think then you're getting into culture at that point, right? Because there are cultural norms. Like I know some ladies who I know love Jesus so much, are humble and amazing and just because of the culture they were raised in, legitimately believe what Ali just said, that you can't walk at the door without makeup on. Mm-hmm. Like, not like it, it, like they just believe that you, like women should not do that just because of the time that they were raised in, right? Which is like, again, a cultural story that they've been told now that they have to, you know, they're old enough now that I'm not going to try to change their mind, but that's just w- w- what it is. And so I think we have to just be aware of the fact that um, sort of what I would sort of pick up, sort of instead of sort of picking at you, Sam, would be that, Right, the way that we do present ourselves is not neutral. Right, mm-hmm. it is within a cultural story. It is within certain narratives and within certain communities. And you know, if the community that you're in, say your workplace, is one more of professionalism as defined by, you know, yeah. shirts, and then then you want to honor that. Like for me, right, I do have more of a luxury, I guess, of not having a uniform per se, but I dress on Sundays the way I would want to dress if I was going out to a meeting anyway. Yeah. Right. So for me, it's, it's actually a common uniform call, whatever you want. Like obviously right now, like you got, we've made fun of me a little bit, the sweatpants and a sweater. I'm not going to wear that to preach. Cause I do think there's a kind of decorum and honor and, um, and professionalism, if you want to call it that in that space for me. But I also do that because I like, I want people to see me. And this is more theological and missional is that like, they can see me preach and see me at show and tell and be like, same yeah. guy. Right. Mm-hmm. 
And so for me, it's a little more that uh, yeah. that line of thinking. And you know, for you, Allie, when you're talking about, you can sort of go both ways. I, I do think, ironically, it's as connected to pride in both sides of it. We, we we've talked about this before in our church, where you know, pride can come across as vanity or self pity because it's because pride ultimately yeah. is the focus on myself more than anything else. And so. Right to come across in a self-pitying sense of I don't like myself. I'm going to essentially self-sabotage and hurt and dress down to not get attacked to protect myself. Mm-hmm. It's still a self-centered approach to my interaction. So making it actually all about me, in not trying to be about me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and so I think there is a kind of still underlying emotional story that that we got to unpack. Like why do I want to protect myself? What am I protecting myself from? What is what is the the thing that I don't want people to recognize in me, to see in me, what's the value that I'm telling? In our case as Christians, right? Like yeah. how am I not aligning myself with what Jesus has said about me already, In whether it's a temple, whether it's called highly favored, chosen, beloved of God, like all those different mm-hmm. things that we could tell we could tell ourselves and why are we expressing ourselves or living ourselves in a way that is not taking full advantage of who we actually are? And I think... When you were just talking, I would say that there's probably a level of just protection. I just don't yeah. I actually don't want people <clears throat> to be able to see me and then not like me or not want me. So I'm just going to give a reason not to. Like, yeah. like, like, and that's not everybody. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's different reasons for it. But I do think like our self-pitting, which we don't like diagnosing this way, but I think it actually is more tied to pride than we realize. Yeah. Um, although it does not look like vanity and arrogance, like some people's expression of it is. But the self-pitying version of it uh, that still makes life about me um, just gets expressed in a more negative or destructive fashion. Yeah. Right? And so I think that that still is the same root issue is I'm not rooting my identity in Jesus. I'm not rooting who I am in, in that I've been accepted. You know, and again, I sometimes when, when I preach that, I'm like, you know, it's true, but I, it's really hard to work itself out because yeah. I'm still having to put myself in social scenarios where people will hurt me. And people will reject me and they won't like me. And the guy that you were flirting with at the time will say no, right? Like, <laughs> fine. So, I like, it's, it, it, it is a an uncanny, almost otherworldly confidence that we have access to in the gospel. Yeah. But to, to apply that into life is difficult, especially through something as surface as shallow in appearance. But, like, we kind of joked about the way we do present ourselves and take care of ourselves is ultimately a reflection of something deeper mm-hmm. underneath it. Like for me, there was a time in my life where I wanted to shave my head, just <laughs> uh, shave it. Cause I, I spent way too much time doing my hair mm-hmm. and I was like, this is stupid. I don't want to be defined by this thing. And for me, it, it seemed like just the only way I could free myself from it was just to get rid of it. And Emily's like, no, you're not shaving your head. <laughs> um, so I had to learn how to adjust. And it seems so silly like just to talk about that, but it actually was such a big, like, I would spend so much time because I wanted my hair to look exactly the way that I wanted it to. And I go to Emily, she's like, and she's like, it looks the same as last week. And that would actually tick me off. Like, no, it looked better last week. And I have to do it again. Yeah. Um, and I got so caught up in it. Um, I know that's not necessarily fashion, but this idea of present, uh, the self-presentation that, it crippled me. Like it spent like there's those those are twenty minutes I could have spent doing something better, right? Over the course of a year, right? That adds up. I'm like, this was just ridiculous. And so 
ultimates because I was wildly insecure about myself. And so we had to deal with some of that stuff. And, and that's where I think we have to go because both sides of that, right, this, the, the protection, self-pitying, the arrogance and the vanity ultimately is that insecurity that's just being masked in two different ways. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. It can be as destructive flaunting as it is protecting um, or whatever word you want to put, put into that. And so I would, yeah, I would just, I would want to dig deeper into the, the, the actual story. The, the What is the narrative I'm telling myself on both instances? And then again, the bigger conversation, well, how does that play itself, play itself out in the church? Because are we creating a community where there's a story that's being told that, mm-hmm. you know, like there has been, there has been, you know, critiques, we'll say, of places like Hillsong that are a little more, you know, popular a little more well known that pretty people are the only ones on the stage and i i honestly don't believe that's what they believe right because you know i've, I've heard enough even if carl lentz's heart in different ways interview sermons to think that like i don't think he's out there looking for the pretty people but you know on the surface i could totally see that that's what it looks like it's like if you don't meet a certain standard then you don't fit on stage and i do think that is even if it's implicit even if it's accidental a very dangerous course of action for churches to take uh because you know a lot of us probably don't feel pretty and is beauty if it is nothing is not in the eye of the beholder and that my standard of that will shift and if as the pastor of church if i'm the one defining what beauty now is Hmm. to me that's kind of dangerous that's really dangerous Right. And I know, again, I don't think anyone's going out there saying that, but I think if if it comes to the thing of like, here's a standard for acceptance or here's the standard for coolness or whatever it is, like if people want to be trendy on like do it. But I do think I do think we have we have to be wary of that. Like and this is a conversation I've had many times in church world is like what like what is the appropriate standard? Because, you know, we don't want to have obviously someone up there and like. I would argue dirty rags, right? Like there is an honor that comes to being in the temple of God and being there before people and honoring the moment. But if I'm only ever choosing people that are presentable and have it all together and look a certain way and match a certain style, then are we telling an equally but opposite story that's just as dangerous and so that's where i think even on a greater kind of theological level we we could go with this where how do we properly actually have a community of faith that is fashioned yeah (laughs) that's not the right word but you know what i mean but whether you're a christian or not whether you're on like if you're on stage like at our church for example there's still a level of we want people to to like us we want people Mm -hmm. to buy in we want people like you, if let's say you're, if I'm interviewing someone to come work for me, what they look like when they present themselves, I am going to immediately judge mm-hmm. and just due to the nature of being human. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to impact the way that I, um, the way that I process and experience, it's going to mm-hmm. impact the way that I experience them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like on that note, like the job interview, I just think of that. There's an expectation that if you're serious about this job, like you should know that you are expected to meet this expectation of presentability, right? Yeah. So, and I feel like you can maybe apply that to the church because there's that sacred aspect to it mm-hmm. that you are, you know, 
You're presenting a, yourself before God and Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I definitely understand that, that like you ought to know better almost. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you, if you know this and you're willfully going against that, there's maybe some kind of issue there, I think. with Well, in the church too, right? It's not like, at the end of the day, right? If there's, if we are on Sunday morning trying to be servants of the mission of Jesus, then we should always want to be as distractionless as possible, yes. yeah. right? So it makes more about Jesus that I'm not doing something that, in a sense, could take someone's purposely, I should say, purposely take someone's eyes off Jesus. Because obviously, right, like, I'm sure that, you know, because of my ripped jeans, some older folk maybe in the crowd would be thrown off for a second and hopefully get past that. So it's like, I'm not, and the thing is, I'm not intentionally doing that to make a stance, to make a case. I'm not wearing some graphic t-shirt with some message on it to just let people see. Like, and so I do think there are, there's wisdom and I wouldn't say people have to be expected to know, but I think there's just wisdom that we are trying to be in this church to make much of Jesus, not much of ourselves. And, and, you know, like, because this thing gets in such a deeper conversation around even church Instagrams and how we present ourselves and, and, you know, why we want certain people to see us in certain lights. You know, we're the young, hip, cool, ripped jean wearing, you know, got the fade on the side kind of church. And it's like... Oh, church Instagrams. Right? Like, there is, there is a level of, like, self-promotion, discipleship, event, you know, event promotion, things that go on, but... Like half the time, right, we're looking for that photo, that, that video that presents us. We want people to like us. To be liked, right? Yeah. And, and, I, and I do think there is a, a missional advantage to being liked. Like obviously we don't <laughs> be able to hate us. But I do think there, it is a bigger conversation around how we present ourselves, right? And, and, what, and what that can look like for us. And why, like it, it gets to mo- motivation for me. Like why am I doing it, right? Like I, I think if someone genuinely just loves fashion and being on trend, then why would I judge them for that as much as someone who doesn't know how to dress properly, yeah, right? But like, until you have a conversation with them, you're not going to know. Yeah, so have a conversation, be in community and recognize that, you know, black goes with everything and you can't wear two different color patterns. Like that's just figured out. Yeah. So this new article came out in The Atlantic last month um, and it's titled, The Religion of Workism is Making Americans Miserable. And uh, so it obviously doesn't apply to us because we're Canadian. Um, no, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, it, it applies to us just as much. Um, so what is workism? So the article defines it as the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but is also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. And the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must always encourage more work. So I'll read you this this. Um, paragraph here that kind of talks about this crazy trend that's happened um it says that in 1980 the highest earning men actually worked fewer hours per week than middle class and low income men according to a survey led by the minneapolis fed but that's changed by 2005 the richest 10 percent of married men had the longest average work week and in that same time college educated men reduced their leisure time more than any other group Today, it's fair to say that elite American men have transformed themselves into the world's premier workaholics, toiling longer hours than both poorer men in the U.S. and rich men in similarly rich countries. This shift defies economic logic and economic history. The rich have always worked less than the poor because they could afford to. The landed gentry of pre-industrial Europe dined, danced, and gossiped while serfs toiled without end. 
In the early 20th century, rich Americans used their ample downtime to buy weekly movie tickets, dabble in sports, etc. Today's rich American men can afford vastly more downtime, but they've used their wealth to buy the strangest of prizes, more work. That's uh, that's fascinating to me, but it's something that actually doesn't surprise me a whole lot. And it's not just American men. I mean, it's men and women. Um, it's um, We are finding our identities increasingly in the work that we do, like the 40-hour week and in some cases the 80-hour week. I mean, we glamorize people like Elon Musk who overworked himself to an absurd degree last year. Like he... He said he was putting in like 80, 100 hour work weeks constantly. And like these are the people that we kind of idolize. These are the cultural influencers that kind of set the standard for everyone else. Like if you're if you're going to get rich, you got to work like these people do. Well, one, one interesting thing in that article that I did pick up on too, though, it's kind of like something to digest was that it made the case that's because what they consider fun is work, that the yeah. creative endeavor has become essentially wealth creation, right? And I thought that was an interesting way of putting it, that what is now fun and leisure is work, is more work. And and I thought maybe, and this could just be me being, you know, extrapolating from it, that because a lot of these guys are entrepreneurial type guys who like started business, made a product that they believed in. Elon Musk, talk about him, like invents crazy things and actually is kind of fun that there might be even like not so cynical part of it. Cause I'm a hundred percent agree with the article, by the way, like I think workaholism and identity is clearly part of who we are, but just that idea that we're labeling our work. Cause the thing is what is really like, what does work mean now? We know, Cause we just have to go deep into that. Cause is, yeah. is work every human endeavor is like, how are we defining leisure and work? Because is it the idea that, work is working for some company, something producing 40 hours a week, right? Yeah. Or is work the creative things I do at all times in all spaces, whether it's for leisure or for pay or for passion or like, like, again, that could be a bigger conversation we get into because yeah. especially if it's creative work, not just route work and plugging numbers, it's mm-hmm. creation of something. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Exactly. For sure. Um, like I went to school to take, a, you know, creative studies and now I work in a it's a little, it's a bit creative. I'd say my work is creative. I'm, I'm creating, creating something. Um, but I also think I see my work as a means to an end. Like it fills my week. I'm doing something productive for society, I guess. And uh, I'm using the rest of my time maybe to focus on the things that give me meaning. So for example, if I were to give a rough estimation of my work week, it's 40 hours spent at work. And I'd say roughly two to three hours, you know, four evenings out of five, I'm probably doing Risen City stuff and then probably a bit of time on Saturday as well. And then obviously Sunday is, you know, a church day is about five hours plus evening. So, yeah. So I think probably say like 15, 20 hours a week on average is is still work, but it's work that's actually like giving me meaning, I'd say. Like I don't. I don't think I'm deriving meaning from what I'm doing in my career, but for people that maybe lack something else to give them meaning in their life, like that is all they have, I guess, if I had to understand that. Yeah. And it's kind of sad. It's, it's pretty sad to see. I literally had conversations today and yesterday with two of my, um, peers 
one of whom is um, she runs the show essentially, and she's in charge of um, a number of different um, a number of different locations um, and retail locations for us. So I remember, you know, bringing my concerns forward and just telling her about this, that, and the other thing. And um, she just looked me in the eye and she's like, if you need anything at any time, just text me. I don't care if it's 11 o'clock at night. I don't care if it's on a Saturday or a Sunday. Like, if you need anything, just let me know. And in my head, I was like, I don't want to text you whenever I feel like it. Like, I want you to be able... She told me she was going on... Um, kind of like had a day off. She took a day off because she never takes a day off. And it was this coveted thing for her in a healthy way. Um, well, not in a healthy way because she never takes days off. Um, it was a much needed day off for her. And she was like, just let me know and I'll respond. And I was like, no, like put your phone away on your day off. Like I don't want you to have to deal with um, what is probably going to be a petty question for me on your day off because everything that she's not married um, anymore And I'm not sure, I don't know if she has any kids or whatever, but just the lifestyle of this completely committed, bought-in lifestyle to her work, like, I looked at her and I was like, I am drained for you. She told me when she was driving to meet me, she had, like, a 45-minute drive. She missed um, about 10 emails and three phone calls in 45 minutes. And I was like, are you crazy? Like, why, why would you... I would never want that. I would never want that position. Yeah, that's that's like a, a really interesting point. You bring up the idea of devoting something to to work. Like, um, I think the article mentioned about how as Christians, like we would devote ourselves to something that's not falsifiable. That's God, right? Mm-hmm. In 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 those terms, whereas um, a job, a career, is falsifiable, and it's it's subject to the whims of the market. Yes. Or a yeah. firing or someone who someone who holds power over you to to make you lose your job. Like you should not be putting your faith in something so material. And like this article was not written from a Christian perspective at all, but it's still recognized that like when you put your faith in these tangible things, they have so much power over your over you and so much ability to just uh you know, tangibly ruin your life. Yeah. And it's just watching that kind of lifestyle play itself out for the the limited time that I've known her it's just my question in my head whenever I see her is when are you going to crash because her energy is consistently high level consistently smiling consistently like not that she's um intentionally being fake or anything like that but um just in this one example I'm just I'm exhausted after a meeting with her and I can't imagine you know, building your identity around something like that. Like that must be draining as a human being to have built your identity around something that's ultimately um, a thing of the world. And I mean, even today I had a conversation with another peer of mine who um, works like a 40 hour a week, is salaried. So, you know, whether they put in 39 or 42, they're getting paid the same amount. And she just looked at me and she's like, you can be that person when you're in this position who works the 40 hours, but you'll see the results of that. And in essence, and then she said to me, when you put in more hours, you see it, you see it and it's reflected. And I'm like, but to what extent, like to what extent is that healthy? 
Um, not that, you know, 40 hours should be the standard. I think it's very regular and healthy standard in our society. I think it should be lower. Yeah. Okay. Me. Yeah. It would be nice if it was lower and you could still. This article said like uh, back in like the 50s, this guy was predicting that we'd be working 15 hour work weeks at this point. Wow. But we're, not, but we're right? not, right? She literally looked at me and she was like, you you could be that person that puts in 40 hours. But what's outlined in the job, what's expected? 40 hours. So it was almost like a diminishment of what was expected. And the expectation was, it's like not exponentially more, but the expectation was, well, it's on paper that it says 40, but like you should be working more. And I was kind of like, well... I don't really want to <laughs> like, that's not what I want to commit my entire life to because I have a, an understanding of the fact that like my life isn't, my purpose isn't derived from what I do. And that's a hard thing to come to terms with. I'm still probably not completely there. Um, but it's something that you have to learn how to wrestle with. Yeah. Like you have to remember with the 40 hours thing, those are like f- the 40 best hours of the week. Like it's the sunny days like right mm-hmm. that's like when the sun is out year round they are when you put when you do the nine to five 40 hour week like they are taking your best hours you have to remember that and i like i don't actually think like with the rise of automation i don't think that it's going to be always reasonable to expect that everyone is working a 40 hour work week like i think there has to be some provision as a wealthy society mm-hmm for people to not have to do that because it's actually not necessary it really isn't well that takes us in a whole different direction it is i let's let's get back to this meaning (laughs) question um well that's the thing that keeps coming in my mind is is really uh, what is the the driving force behind our work Right, because yes, at some level, obviously, it's to provide and to eat in the culture that we have. We've created systems; we have to work within them, and yes, we can break them, and blah blah blah. But here we are, right? Um, but I think the, the the issue ultimately that we have to be careful of is not that work isn't the place of meaning, like it is, it should be, yeah. right? To me, it's about the balance, not the balance. I don't even like that word, the harmony of my life, right? That like. I have different responsibilities and roles to play. One is to be a father and a husband, um, to be um, a friend, sibling, bro. Like I have all these hats that we got that we have that we have to wear, and that work often dominates that because, you know, um, it is the way upon which we do survive, mm-hmm. right? And and again, I don't and I don't necessarily think that our system of that is perfect, but. Like what we often forget is one of the first things God instituted was work, right? Like when he made Adam, he's like, all right, work the field. Like the, his first commandment almost was, was work, right? That that the idea of working, and yes, we get theologically into the fact that there is a fall and then the fall, one of the curses in the fall was that work would be hard and it'd be hard to be provided for and that there will be labor and toil and weeds and all this different stuff, right? So there is an element actually of the struggle being the result of sin in our world, com- like false com- competition and greed and all these different things that play itself out. And so I, I would want to make sure that we're not seeing our, our work as some evil place of meaningless existence. Because I don't care if it's Starbucks, I don't care if it's 
McDonald's, I don't care if it's the church, right? Like every breath I breathe should be breathed with the mission of Jesus. And as ideal as that sounds, right, it should be the Christian calling, right? That I make everything a moment of mission, a moment of purpose, a moment of meaning. And so there shouldn't be this, for us, I believe, right, who have access to Jesus, who have been adopted into that family, that there never, there should never be the divide of here's my meaningless work and my meaningful work. Here is my missional work and my non Like it actually should never be that way. The, the, and so I think we have to be careful mm. with those blatant distinctions. Someone who's working 80 hours a week is unbalanced, especially if they have a family, right? If they don't have a family, they're single and they just want to then like, okay, if it does bring you, like, again, I think there's more to life than your work. But then again, and this, I guess, too theoretical, but like, what is the definition of work at that point, right? Because for me, right, as, as a pastor, right, part of my work is to read, to study, right, to meet yeah. with people, which is labor sometimes, but like, it's also just what I love doing, Yeah. right? And, and so I think like, so then do I work less? Well, no, but maybe yes. I like again, and so I so and, and but if I was at Starbucks, right, and I'd have to go clock in, clock out, because you got like I was gonna make donuts actually when we first started the church. I was gonna get a job five hundred morning, maybe making donuts, and I would have done it. And and the reason why I would have had meeting in it's because I was providing for my family so they could eat. Like so I, again, I I think we can't have this idealized version of like to not work or to work. But where this article I think hits is that when you have lost ultimately a transcendent purpose for your life, Yeah. right? Mm. You will, you, you are going to find it somewhere, right? And if it is spending 80 hours a week to create some amazing world-changing product, then that is a level of meaning and purpose, but we, we would say it's short-sighted. It's misplaced. Right? Yeah. And so I think there is a tension there. Yeah, I do want to be very clear. So I know I drew the distinction before maybe between my work and then what's actually giving me meaning in my life. And I want to be clear that I can only do the things that I do outside of my 40 hour work week because I do my 40 hour work week. Like it, it all yeah. lives in harmony together. It's all serving like it is serving the greater purpose of me living my life as I live it. And, and hopefully um, living up to all that God's called me to do. Yeah. But, and I like that idea. I think a little bit more that like we see our life as what is it? 168 hours in a week. I think it's that um, to have that approach to it that like, there are days where, you know, it's the 40-hour work week that has to be done right now. And there's days that it's sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. And my goal is not simply to be defined by, by my productivity, but ultimately by my purpose, right? That I'm moving forward in that, in that regard. And I think what you just said is actually really powerful that, like, I have gotten this job, right, which might not connect fully to the purpose upon which I live, but it helps me facilitate that thing, mm -hmm. right? I think that's what we have to begin seeing. It's like that everything should be leading in that direction. But when I don't have that place to be led to, that vision for life, other than I think what they make the article, basically making money, having status, you know, working and working and working just to prove identity, really, then ultimately my purpose is what? The creation of my identity, right? Mm -hmm. So it is a transcendent thing, but it's, like you said, misplaced and short-sighted. And we have to just be aware of the fact that... Uh, that whether it's 50, because even if we went down to 15 hours a week or whatever they said, right? Which in his mind, I think it was, um, 
uh, who, who it was the it's the uh, the economist um, the guy who made Keynesian economics. Keys was that what or whatever his name? Is? Anyways, Keynesian. Is that what it is? We're, no one here studies economics, so I did one time. oh, you did one time. I took two um, I've done some reading on it lately, but anyways, it doesn't really matter. That that his ideal vision for life would that be? And then the question becomes: Well, okay, so if 15 hours a week out of 168 are being used up. What would people use their time for? And and the ideal is that well for you know meaningful creative expressions and leisure and all this. But again, again, why is the goal to create space for leisure? I think that's I think a deeper question because we like leisure because we do right like <laughs> and again we read you read through you know Ecclesiastes there's a time to eat drink and be merry a time to enjoy your wife like God's like there is good things to be done and so I am right, we have a rhythm of rest in our faith right the, the Sabbath is meant to literally stop life pray eat good food be with God's people like enjoy life but the pursuit of my life isn't to curate a comfort in fact, I think the heart of that actually is kind of against the gospel, to be real. Mm-hmm. Um, like to avoid pain, to avoid suffering in a world that's full of it, right? Like work is hard. That is actually yeah. part of the reason how God has like humbled us as human beings, that work is hard. And I'm not saying there's not redemption. We can't get there. Of course there is, blah, 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 right? But I just do think that we have to be careful of the motivation. If the motivation is to somehow create a space upon which leisure is our only pursuit, we will end up purposeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so you mentioned before about God creating Adam, and one of the first things he did was instituting work. And to be honest, I mean, I see how you got there. The way I read it more is that he instituted responsibility. So... Yeah, just that like that Adam was responsible for the Garden of Eden, that he had to, to tend to it, to name the animals and all this stuff. It was more that like he had responsibility over it. And like I think that's more the way I look at my life, that I have this time, these resources that I'm responsible for. Um, well, and that, but that is also, that same thing is implied in the Imago Dei, right? That we were stewards of creation and that the cultivation of the garden was a task given by God for Adam, for a time that would not be synonymous for every single person, right? Right. And so I think you could argue both ways, hundred um, percent. But I, you could, but even still, say we go along that line, right? That still demands certain tasks and labor from me. Mm-hmm. And so, like, again, that's where it gets to the definition of what work is, right? Because I think that our work is worship. And when you say work and I say work, what we normally mean is the forty hours we put in at some job, yeah. career, whatever. But work really is essentially all the normal human activities we do underneath the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, underneath God's world, right? That does include all of our creative endeavor. That does include all of the work that we do to produce, to make um, something of value, whether that is being paid for it or being passionate in it, right? And so I think we have to just be aware of the fact that the activity of our life is our work. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it sucks. Sometimes it's good. And sometimes it's divided. Like you said, there's, you have the, the church work. You have the um, airplane design. Not airplane design. You know what I mean? Software design. Software design work, right? Yeah. But then you also have the work of, um, like, I know uh, that, that, you know, for you, right, you go to concerts and things. You hang out with friends. You play hockey. 
Yeah. Hockey's work. It's laborious, right? It takes work to get done. I just but you, enjoy it a lot right? more. But you would, right? And so, again, yeah. so what's the difference? The enjoyment? Yeah, right? I don't know. The that's, health, that's, right? And so I think we have question. to just be careful around that. I think what this article is tying into, right, is the cultural definition of the career or the job, right, that drives us. And I think, like, a little more stereotypically, I think it does say that it's like it's a lot of it's in the men because I think men do almost automatically derive much more of their meaning and identity from what they produce, Mm -hmm. right? Versus the social connections that they develop, Um, which is maybe why I think we need to be careful because the irony that I was thinking about, and you guys, you know, is that, can speak to that, is that so the millennials are often seen as lazy, yeah, right? And underworked, Mm. which could be true in some cases, but yet, the richest people and the goal that we're selling in culture is to be overworked, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, is there this kind of almost, I don't know, like tension or almost false narrative of... They sound like mutually exclusive. But there, but yeah, but maybe... I don't know. I think right? that's... I don't know if that's all true because I think there's a lot of millennials that have that mindset of like let's work 80 hours a week Mm -hmm. that's what i think yeah yeah but i also i mean there i think it's both i think it's maybe there's just less of a middle ground maybe with Mm -hmm. millennials i I would have to see some sort of statistics on that but that is how i perceive maybe i just find it interesting that those are like some two generalizations of modern world yeah is that we have all these millennials who don't know how to work and are lazy and want to have flex time um who also usually have like three jobs and side hustles right (laughs) and then these rich guys at the top who are working 80 100 hours a week trying to make it happen right it's like there, there there's there is a common thread i think um ultimately in it all but we got to figure out like what is the story that we're being told that some are embracing some are rejecting and for us it's like where how do we stand in that and call people to a better life because that's really what as a church we want to do right like here's the way of jesus your work is meaningful your leisure is meaningful your life is meaningful it's 168 hours, not 40. It's it's not it's it's the whole thing. And to be honest, I've had to do that. So this is an interesting story about for my life is outside of the grace of God, I would be this 125 percent, mm-hmm. right? It'd be 80 hours a week for sure. I'd probably hate it, but I want to produce. I want to make. And I actually had and talk about like just having prayer moments with God. Um, one of those times where um, he literally said to me, I wrote down in my journal, like you need to redefine productivity for you because it was just driving my life that that all i was was the byproduct of what i could produce like that's that's how i had to define myself and usually that's based on comparison right like obviously i don't have wealth to be like well i'm richer than that guy my, like it was church stuff it was sermons it was me and and the god had god actually had to bring me through a refinement of what i define productivity to be in my life and how it can't define me yeah Right, that that productivity for me has to be much more like what you said about purpose, and that like my job helps supply the purpose of my life, and recognizing that balance, and seeing my role as father and husband and pastor as more of a like a symphony of 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 music that also notes that play together to create this beautiful song, right? That sometimes one plays stronger or louder than the other notes or whatever but ultimately it's meant to create this harmonious thing um then like strict dividing lines when this is my work life because i used to do that like i tell him like i can't you know come home and be with you till it's like 4 30 on the dot or four o'clock because that's my time 
And then I began to realize that I sucked as a husband at that time. She was unhappy. The church wasn't flourishing because I was not flourishing. Right? And I had to realize that, like, I have to see my life. And this might be the millennial in me, but, like, it's all day, every day. My life is purpose-filled, right? And sometimes that's at home. Sometimes that's at work. Sometimes, like, I'm putting in way more hours than I probably should at the church. And sometimes it's a 35-hour week. And I've had to be okay with that given that my metric is not wealth production, is not, um, you know, pumping out four sermons in a week. It's actually about purposely intentionally cultivating the mission of God in my life and I get to say that I know I work in a church I get whatever and I do believe the best place to work is in the church so if, so I'm just saying if you want to raise your salary to come work at the church best thing you'll ever do unless until we can pay you fully later on in the future because right now we can't um, but um, I do have that privilege and I recognize that but even for anybody I would still argue right that a tech company Starbucks Shopify Google wherever you are right it is it, there there is so much purpose for us to live in in those pla- places um that work doesn't have to feel like it's the all defining thing it's actually an avenue of meaning um and 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 not in this article's way of workaholism right as like the god of our life but as an opportunity